Well, that's a problem. Wow. <laughs> it's a relief. <laughs> Hi. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much uh, for the invitation. How many of you are new to a, a program from this organization, from True North? So, thank you. Um, I always feel people who have this kind of resource available are very, very lucky. I remember once I got, tell me if you can't hear me by the way, because I can't quite tell. Um, hmm? Okay, thank you. Uh, I once got an email from somebody saying, I feel a tremendous need for some support in my meditation practice. I feel very alone with these values, with these interests. And I'm afraid I wrote back rather glibly. And I said, you know, there are groups everywhere now, or almost everywhere. And there's so many places where you can find that kind of community and that kind of help. Where are you? And then he wrote back and he told me, and I thought, ooh, <laughs> maybe not there. <laughs> and I Googled it, which is what I do, even when I'm traveling to a place not to teach, but just to travel, I'll, I'll Google Insight Meditation, and then the name of the town. And I'm always surprised at how many things come up, but not for him. <laughs> and I felt really bad. And of course, there are other things one can do in terms of internet communities and so many possibilities, but I always think it's, it's such a tremendous blessing to be in a place where there's clearly, there are clearly several options for ways of getting together and learning and growing and being challenged and challenging others and, and just the the greatness of a community based on these values. So I was especially happy to you know, have the opportunity to, to be here and, and visit you. Now I'll tell you what was going through my mind when Pascal was speaking. <laughs> because I don't speak French. Um, I'm afraid. Uh, I was thinking, is it too late for me to learn? <laughs> I would love to learn another language, and then I thought, it's probably too late. <laughs> it's probably way too late. And then I had a memory. Um, my first book was called Loving Kindness, and it came out in 1995. And as I was working on it, 1993, 1994, I didn't have a, a computer. I didn't know that many people with laptops. I knew a few, and I noticed that those few, whenever they were at a party, they could talk about nothing else <laughs> but their laptop. And I was quite intimidated. I thought, I can never learn that. I mean, how could I ever learn how to use one? So in those days, as some of you may recall, cutting and pasting meant getting a pair of scissors. <laughs> it's true, right? You got a pair of scissors, you cut out that paragraph, you moved it up and down the page, and then you got your tape, and you taped it in its new place. So that's how I was working on the book. And one of those years, 93 or 94, uh, at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, 
we had a visit from a 94-year-old Buddhist monk from Sri Lanka. And we sat in one of the rooms upstairs just having a chat, and he mentioned that he was learning how to use a computer. So I thought, okay. (laughs) At 94, he's learning something totally new, and if he can do it, I can do it. And I went and got a computer, and I finished the book. That's what went through my mind, uh, because I didn't understand a word of what he said. So, uh, my most recent book actually was called Real Happiness at Work, and it tends to be centered in the workplace, but as I've spoken about it, I've realized that uh, it really is much more about life than necessarily just about the workplace. It's about having a sense of endeavor or wanting to see, wanting to make a difference. Uh, Working with others and all the complexity that might actually come from that. It was born uh, from an earlier book I did which was called Real Happiness. And Real Happiness is a guide to how to establish or renew a meditation practice. The original title of Real Happiness for a very long time in the production process was Why Meditate? Because that's actually what it's about. And then I got an advanced copy of a friend, Matty Ricard's forthcoming book, which was going to be called Why Meditate? So his book was coming out in September, mine was coming out the following February, and we quickly had a scramble for a different title, so the publisher suggested Real Happiness. And I was kind of ambivalent about that. On the one hand, I thought, I think truly that's what we genuinely yearn for. We want a kind of happiness that won't be so broken by circumstance, won't be so disrupted when maybe our expectations are not met, that doesn't feel so fragile, so breakable. We want that because that is the source of generosity, of caring, of giving, of service. On the other hand, I thought, I'm going to get in trouble. So many times we tend to associate happiness with being kind of happy-go-lucky and superficial and endlessly seeking pleasure, which we do anyway. You don't need a book for that. Um, Being kind of uh, selfish, self-absorbed, self-preoccupied. It doesn't feel right to want to be happy. But the way that I was conceptualizing happiness really was a kind of inner resource, right? Because when we feel depleted, broken, hollow, exhausted, there's not a lot of wherewithal within us to try to do something well, to aim for excellence, to help others, and to continue to help others. 
through all of the inevitable ups and downs of, of any kind of process. Right? Happiness is really a good thing. It's not a selfish thing. It's what it's like inner abundance from which we can move to really be connected to others. So I was quite ambivalent about it. And then um, I had a radio interview this morning, which is going to air tomorrow, and I said just this. Uh, the first interview I had for that book, the first question was, are you trying to say that the kind of happiness I experience when I have a lovely dinner with my wife isn't real? And I said, of course I think it's real. And if anything, if we paid more attention to it and were more appreciative more grateful for the beautiful, wonderful things that come our way, we would feel better about our lives. We'd feel more fulfilled. And those experiences are very changeable. They come and they go. I said to him, what about the night you don't like your dinner all that much? And I thought but did not say... What about the night you don't like your wife all that much? Right? Because this all happens. So what's a quality of happiness that isn't going to be so dependent on circumstance? Not disconnected from circumstance. Not indifferent or impervious. Fully connected, but not defined by circumstance. So where is that resource that we can develop? That would be real happiness. Then I went on tour with that book, and I continued to get a lot of pushback about the title. I would go to town after town in the States, and people would say, haven't you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention? (laughs) And I'd say, well... I have seen it, actually, and not only that, people in the last town brought it up. Um, And I understand the sentiment. We can be so conflict-avoidant and so afraid to admit our vulnerability and so ignorant of the suffering in this world. I really do understand the sentiment. And what about when we are depressed and overcome and we feel shattered? There is not a lot of wherewithal to try to make a difference, to show up in a different way. So our own happiness is not a bad thing. It's not a selfish thing. It's really a tremendous source of strength and clarity and connection. So for me, of course, my experience of that kind of happiness, not so dependent on condition, or circumstance has been born of my meditation practice. I went to India in 1970. I was a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo. And in my sophomore year, I took an Asian philosophy course. Really honestly, looking back, as far as I can remember, it was just happenstance. I needed a philosophy course, it was a requirement. I looked at the schedule and I thought something like, oh, that's on Tuesday, that's convenient. (laughs) Let me do that one. And it completely changed my life. 
there were a couple of things I heard in that course that were really essential for me. One was, in the section on the Buddhist teaching, one was the Buddha's very unashamed, unafraid acknowledgement of the suffering in life. Like many people, I come from a family with a great deal of suffering and a great deal of turmoil. And like for many people, it was a family system where this was never, ever spoken about. And I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And here was the Buddha saying right out loud what I knew really well to actually be true. That there's suffering in life. It's a natural part of things. It's not just you. You don't have to feel isolated. You don't have to feel somehow cut off from the flow of life. This is a part of things. So that was very liberating. And then I heard that there were actual practical tools one could employ called meditation that if you, if you actually practice them could change your relationship to suffering, and not only to suffering, to joy, to neutral experience. It could change your relationship to everything so that you had a different life. Changing our relationship to pleasure, to joy, to delight. What about when we are having that lovely dinner and we're so distracted, we're not even there? Or we're so consumed with what we think we need that we don't have that we hardly pay attention to what we do have. Like here we are in this very simple room, but I'm already admiring this rug, right? I'm thinking, huh, this would actually go very well in my apartment. <laughs> Forget the rug I already have. It's not good enough suddenly. This one's better, right? Or what about when we have some concept of what should be happening so we don't really appreciate what is. I was once, I go to Washington DC a fair amount to teach. And one year I went in the spring, right in the time of the cherry blossom season. And it's so beautiful. The trees are all, the majority of the trees are kind of collected in this one area and uh, all those beautiful, delicate pink blossoms. And so this particular year I went and I was very busy. So I only got to go there to the basin, as it's called, uh, at night. So a friend of mine, hearing that I'd only gotten to go there at night, when I went the following year, she was determined that she would get me there during the day. So we made room in my schedule and we did all the stuff and uh, I got there during the day, and I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. I just thought it was incredibly, incredibly lovely. And then my friend said, oh no, it's past the peak. <laughs> and suddenly I thought, I'm not having a good experience. <laughs> this is not as good as it should have been. It's past the peak. Oh, this is terrible. What a bad experience. I'm not So there are all kinds of ways we relate to pleasure, joy, delight, wonderful things that come our way, just out of the force of conditioning, out of habit, so that we don't really enjoy them. 
in the way we might. Or this beautiful thing happens and we start clinging right away. I've got to keep it forever. I've got to keep it in control so it never changes. Well, good luck with that, right? And then, of course, there are tremendous habits in terms of how we relate to pain or difficulty or suffering. We're often taught shouldn't be there. It's our fault. Been meditating for 40 years, shouldn't be there anymore. Spent $10,000 in therapy just last year, it should be gone. <laughs> it's wrong, we feel ashamed, we feel afraid, we feel rejection, we feel despair, on top of what already hurt, right? Or if it's someone else's suffering, uh, we might want them just to go away. So we don't have to bear witness to it. We isolate ourselves, it's only me. We isolate others. It's like a, a, a compound mistake, right? It already hurts and then we add all of those kind of strange ways of relating that make it so much worse. And with neutral experience, all those things in between, not very pleasant not very unpleasant, we tend to go to sleep. We just zone out. We numb out, we disconnect, we kind of snooze, waiting for something exciting to happen or something intense to happen so we can wake up and feel alive. That is a picture of our conditioning. And meditation practice is actually the way to challenge and reforge and find alternatives to all of that conditioning so that we can experience the beautiful, wondrous, great things that come our way fully, completely, without that extra stuff that we tend to lay on it. And we can experience the painful, difficult, challenging things that come but without adding shame and fear and all of those things which make it feel so much worse. Or projection into the future, that's another favorite one with painful experience. Like, not only do we experience it right now, but right away we're thinking, what's it gonna feel like in a week? What's it gonna feel like in a month? What's it gonna feel like in a year? And so we're not only experiencing the difficulty right now, we're experiencing all of that anticipated pain. And it's overwhelming. And we can actually wake up with the neutral experience. We can, in a way, it's like training our attention towards subtlety. So we don't need such dramatic experience. We don't need such intensity always to feel alive. That's meditation training. When I went to India, when I went, took this course, um, the university also had a program, like an independent study program, and they said if you created a project that they liked, that they approved of, you could go basically spend your junior year wherever, uh, and with the theory that you would come back for your <laughs> final year and do a kind of cross-cultural study. When I was on the book tour for um, 
real happiness at work, I was in Denver and I, I was telling the story. And then when I was signing books afterwards, somebody came up to me and he said, I was in Buffalo exactly same years. I got into the independent study program and I said, where'd they, go, where'd they send you? And he said, I went to New Mexico to study communities. He said, I never went back. <laughs> but I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. Because I wanted to learn how to do that thing I heard about, change my relationship to my life. Now this doesn't mean that only nice things happen, of course. I mean, life is life. But we can be different with it all. And that's the training. So I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And this is what education kind of looked like then, in that place. And they said, sure, go ahead. So I went. Uh, I went in uh, 1970, and I began meditating in January of 1971 in the context of an intensive 10-day retreat, because what I was looking for was something very pragmatic. I wasn't looking for a belief system or a philosophy. I didn't want to, say, become a Buddhist or have a new identity. I didn't want to reject anything else. I wanted to learn how to. Like, what's the how to of actually paying attention in this different way? And it took me a while, wandering around India, to find just that kind of situation. I finally did in this intensive 10-day retreat. That's how I started. So we're going to do some meditation here together tonight. Um, When I walked into that compound, into that monastery. I had not meditated before for one single second. (laughs) And there I was. The very first instruction I heard, which we're going to do a bit tonight, uh, is a common foundational exercise in meditation, and that was sit down and feel your breath. Feel the sensations of just the in and out breath. And in this system, it's the normal natural breath. You're not trying to make it deeper or different. So sit down and feel your breath. And my first thought was, what do you mean feel my breath? I came all the way to India. You know, where's the magical, esoteric, fantastic technique that's going to turn my life around? I could have stayed in Buffalo to feel my breath. <laughs> and then I thought, well, how hard can this be? It's like, wow. I had thought, okay, what will it be? Like 800 breaths, 900 breaths before my mind wanders. And to my absolute astonishment, it was like one. <laughs> or two, maybe three. And then I would be gone. And I'd be way gone. And then, just to jump ahead to the instruction for a minute, comes the magic moment. You're sitting, you feel a couple of breaths, you go, who knows where. You realize that. There's that thought, oh, been quite some time since I last felt a breath. That's considered the crucial moment in the practice. Because that's the moment we can practice letting go. It's what one of my teachers once called exercising the letting go muscle. We practice letting go. 
and with great kindness toward ourselves, instead of disparaging ourselves or blaming ourselves, we shepherd our attention back to the feeling of the breath. We let go and we start over. That's the training. Okay, so what I heard in that retreat was meditation described as a skills training. And it's a skills training toward happiness, toward that kind of real happiness. The first training, the first great skill, is in concentration. It's a lot like what I just described. Most of us experience our minds as fairly scattered, distracted, all over the place. We don't feel settled. We don't feel centered. Maybe that's not true in every arena of our lives, but it's true in some, right? And you don't need to be an experienced meditator to know that. You sit down to think something through, and you're gone before you know it. Our minds jump to the past, and we go over and over and over some situation, commonly one where we now have some kind of regret. But we're not going over it with an eye to how to make amends or be different. We're just going over it and over it and over it and over it. Or our minds jump to the future. And we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen. And we're full of anxiety about that. The example I use a lot is I was teaching a a class in New York City with a friend of mine, Bob Thurman. He's a professor of Buddhist studies at Columbia University. And I was speaking and I said, it's like you're sitting on an airplane in a New York City airport, your plane is sitting on the tarmac, and then you start thinking, I wonder if this plane is going to be late. Oh no, I bet it's going to be late. How late? Maybe a little bit late? No, I bet it's going to be really, really late. Oh no, that's going to mean I'm going to miss my connection. Oh no, I'm going to miss my connection. Oh, that's so terrible. That means I'm going to land in Portland, Oregon. It's going to be after midnight. What, what's going to happen to me? As though... Portland was famous for people vanishing if they left. Like, what will become of me? It's not like New York City. There won't be any taxis. And I said, as I was teaching, as an aside, I said, when I see my own mind beginning that arc of anxiety, I have this saying which I use with myself, which is, something will happen. Right? Something will happen. There'll be a bus. I'll spend the night at the airport. I can't figure it out right now. I don't even know if my plane's going to be late. Right? I made that whole thing up. So the reason I said I was teaching with Bob when uh, I used the example was because maybe six weeks after the class, I got an email from him which simply said, just landed in Portland, lots of cabs. <laughs> But our minds, you know, just do this. So the practice of concentration is one of gathering. Like that's a huge amount of energy that could be available to us, but it's not because it's flung into the past and flung into the future. So as we deepen concentration, we gather that energy around a chosen object, whatever that might be, say the feeling of the breath, and we settle. 
Maybe 10 seconds later, we have to do it again. But over time, what happens is a much greater steadiness, steadfastness, centeredness of our being. And that energy gets returned to us, so it's very, very empowering to have that energy available to us instead of just flying all over the place. It's a pretty happy state. And the second great skill of meditation practice is mindfulness, which is like the word of the hour. Um, mindfulness is being used quite a lot. You've probably noticed you know, the mindful revolution on the cover of Time magazine, and mindful this and mindful that. Um, sometimes when I go from New York City to Washington, D.C. by train, I really look forward to hearing, to hearing the train conductors because every once in a while they say, uh, oh, there goes my thing. They say, please be mindful of the gap <laughs> between the train and the station platform. How's that? Okay. Um, what they really mean is please be careful of the gap. And so that sometimes that's what they say. So classically, mindfulness means a quality of awareness so that our perception of what's happening in the moment is not so distorted by bias, by old conditioned forces. Oh no, I shouldn't feel that. I shouldn't allow that. Or this is going to last forever. Or I'm the only one. Or some assumption that really limits our view. I use the example sometimes of, let's say you're on your way to a party and you run into a friend and the friend says, oh, you know who I met today? I met that new person we're going to work with, our new colleague. And they are really, really boring. <laughs> then you go to the party and who do you get stuck talking to but that very person you have just heard is incredibly boring. So how likely is it that you really listen, that you really look at them, that you really take them in? It's not that likely. More likely you're thinking of the 50 emails you need to write, or you're looking around like, who else would be more interesting to talk to? Like anybody. <laughs> right? And maybe you realize that and you think, you know what? I don't even know for myself that I find this person really boring. That was someone else's impression. What if I let that, whoa, see? My ears were not made for this. What if I let that go for now, and then I listen, and I really look at them, and I really take them in. Maybe at the end of the evening, I'll decide, you know what, that new person who's going to work with us, they're really boring. <laughs> but maybe not because life is full of surprises when we pay attention. So mindfulness doesn't mean you never draw a conclusion, you never have a response, you never have a feeling about anything, but we don't want to just be held prisoner of those automatic, reflexive reactions that may be based on nothing, right? They're just old habits. So if we can let go of the grip and just be with our experience, we have the opportunity, we have the space, we have the freedom 
to maybe respond in a different way. One of the problems with the word mindfulness or the um, words used to define it, while accurate, I think they are somewhat problematic in English at any rate. Um, We say mindfulness means being with things without judgment or accepting things the way that they are. And there's the possibility of misinterpreting that to mean a kind of passivity, complacency, that you're going to lose all common sense and not have a a reasonable reaction to anything. I was teaching once, and just as when we sit, I'll begin the instruction. Sometimes, even before we come to feeling the breath, we just pay attention to sound. We listen to sound. And I'd gotten only that far in the instruction when someone raised his hand and he said, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm I hear? Do I sit here mindfully, (laughs) noticing that the smoke alarm is going off, or do I get up? And I said, I get up. (laughs) Right? But I actually also understood the question. Doesn't it sound that way? I'm going to accept things the way that they are. I'm going to be with things without judgment. But it's not meant to imply that kind of Passivity. It's a very dynamic, vibrant, alive state as we connect to everything in a different way. And then the third great skill of meditation practice, which makes for a great deal of happiness, is loving kindness or compassion. It's a different way of relating to ourselves. It's a different way of relating to the world, a different sense of belonging, inclusion. We could feel so locked into the sense of self and other and us and them. We can be uh, so judgmental of ourselves. I was teaching recently with a neuroscientist friend of mine and I asked him if there were studies on the efficacy of self-compassion. Because, for example, in that moment I talked about in meditation, we've been distracted, we've been way lost, far from where we want to be. And then we realize that we would say the best way to cultivate a meditative a position or stance is gently letting go and with compassion for yourself beginning again. Because the great temptation in that moment of distraction is to just go on a tirade. Right? No one else in this room is thinking. They're not thinking. I'm thinking. I'm like the worst meditator that's ever lived. They're all sitting here in bliss. They're all sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. Or what color is that light? I forget. I read somewhere about some light. Is it golden? Is it blue? Whatever it is, they've got it. I don't have it. They're not thinking. I'm thinking. They're wonderful. I'm terrible. 
Maybe they are thinking, but they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking spiritual thoughts. They're thinking meaningful thoughts. I'm the only one who's thinking about why there's so many roundabouts in Quebec. I don't understand that. I'm not in charge of the traffic pattern in Quebec. Why am I doing this? You know, like, I'm so stupid. I'm so bad. Right? That's more common. And when we do that, when we fall into that not only does it extend the period of the distraction, sometimes considerably, it's so exhausting. It's so demoralizing. It's actually not the best way to get the job done. So that translates right into our life. Because my belief is that nothing in life is a straight shot. We go forward, we fall down. We need to get up or we need someone else's help in getting up, we start over. We have a great aspiration, we forget it. We need to come back, we need to start over. We have tremendous values, we lose touch with them. We have to start over. I think that's actually the rhythm of life. We're always needing to begin again and begin again and begin again. And the best way to do it, the most effective way to do it, the most efficient way to do it, is through self-compassion. So I believe that from my own experience. I believe that from teaching so many people for so many years. So I asked this neuroscientist friend, is there any kind of study that actually shows that? And he thought a minute and he said, You know, actually, there are a lot of studies about performance in all kinds of ways. And that what they show, what they seem to show is that if, if you're really harsh and, and there's a lot of fear, your performance will improve for a very short period of time. That it is a motivator and you cannot sustain action through that. So think about that. To cultivate some kind of compassion for ourselves is not to be weak. It's actually a tremendous strength and will propel us toward a very different kind of success. And just as we develop compassion for ourselves, we develop loving kindness and compassion for others, which doesn't mean anything really sentimental or weak. Uh, tomorrow, Uh, for those of us who will be together, we'll spend a lot of time exploring mindfulness and we'll spend a lot of time exploring loving kindness and compassion, both theoretically and also through, through meditation and, and dialogue. So loving kindness, I believe, really is developed in a sneaky kind of way, whatever meditation practice you're doing, just like in that moment. When your mind wanders, how are you with yourself? And can you begin again? It's also developed um, through particular techniques that are devoted only to the cultivation of qualities like loving kindness and compassion. I call them the stretch. So, for example, um, it's realizing that the way we pay attention can be in a kind of rut of some kind. And as an adventure, we step out of that rut and we pay attention in a different way. 
So with yourself, for example, if you're in the habit of at the end of the day looking back at your day, almost as though to evaluate yourself, and if you are in the habit of pretty well only remembering the things you did wrong and what you don't like and the mistakes you made and that really stupid thing you said at lunch at the meeting, so much so that your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be just collapses around that stupid thing you said at lunch at the meeting. We also want to stretch, right? What's the good within me? Anything else happened today? What did I do right? This isn't an exercise in egotism or arrogance, but we're challenging that collapse. It's not wishful thinking. It's not disguising what happened. You're not saying, oh, wasn't that a brilliant, witty thing I said at lunch at that meeting? Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences for that. But that's not all that we are, ever. Right? So we play with our consciousness in different ways. I think a, a very great example of that, uh, and this is, you know, I'll close soon and then we'll just sit together for a while before we do questions. A great example of that is a gratitude practice. Psychologists say one of the most healing things any of us can do is keep a gratitude journal. And that is, at the end of the day, just write down three things you're grateful for from the day. And I always say, one of them can be that you're breathing. And I always say, that doesn't come easily for me. My personal conditioning, my cultural conditioning, is such that I am much more likely to come to the end of the day and think about everything I can complain about. Not only with myself, although certainly including myself, but there's always an airline, right? Or phone service, or somebody was late, or disappointed me, or that didn't go that well, or why did it rain? And, right? That's just where my attention tends to go through force of conditioning. So it is a stretch for me to have the intentionality to say, okay, all that could be true, and what's the bigger picture here? What am I leaving out? Can I pay attention to that as well? And just so, with relationship, with connection to others, who am I leaving out? Right, it's all a very interesting adventure. So all three of these, concentration, mindfulness, and loving kindness or compassion, are considered skills we can train. We can engender, we can develop, we can nurture, we can generate, and they become just a part of who we are. And we experience our lives in every dimension, whether we're at home or at work, with our families or alone, we experience a very different degree and quality of happiness. Okay. So, why don't you stretch if you like, and then we're going to do some meditation practice.
So how many of you are new to meditation practice? Okay, great. Well, I'm going to guide you through it. Um, in terms of that uh, concentration exercise, basically it's, it's commonly done by choosing a certain object of attention, resting our attention on that object, 
finding our minds are scattered, we're all over the place, letting go and beginning again. The operative word is really rest. When I was writing Real Happiness and the manuscript first went off to the editor, she wrote back to me and she said, you keep using the word rest, are you very tired? (laughs) And I wrote back and I said, probably, but that's actually the word. So we choose an object, we rest our attention, do not freak out if you have to let go and begin again a billion times, really, truly. That doesn't mean you need remedial work, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, that's the process. Okay, what is that chosen object that we're resting our attention on? It really could be anything, and that's one of the ways we have such a tremendous variety of techniques and styles and methods. Could be a mantra, could be a sound, could be an image, um, could be a reflection, could be a prayer, could be something happening in your body. Very commonly, at least sometimes, that object, that kind of central object or anchor for our attention, that home base, is the feeling of the breath. As my early teachers would say, you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. You don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you could be meditating. And when one went on to say, I've always thought very charmingly, he said, the breath is very portable. (laughs) So maybe you sit at home for 10 or 15 minutes each day, resting your attention on the feeling of the breath. This is what you come back to when you've gotten distracted. And that's a kind of muscle memory you bring with you. Then you're at work, say, and there's this contentious meeting going on, and tempers are starting to flare, and anxiety is starting to go up. You don't have to open up the closet door and pull out all this equipment and you know, get your cushion on the floor and your meditation gong and your statue and flowers and sit down and close your eyes and look mindful. You're breathing, right? Nobody even has to know you're doing it. It's perfectly private. It's your own. We come back to the moment. We come back to ourselves we remember to breathe. And in that moment of coming back to ourselves, we come back to our values. We come back to our priorities. Right? The breath is very portable. And many of the exercises about work life or just bringing the practice into life will involve something like, don't pick up the phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Because it's right there for us. It helps a lot if we have that kind of daily boost. It's like that training where we keep getting used to that, just coming back to the feeling of the breath. Okay, so I'll guide you through it. If you can sit comfortably, see if your back can be straight without being strained or overarched. 
You want some energy in your body, but you don't want so much energy that you're really stiff and uptight. You also want to be relaxed, but not like so relaxed that your waist slumped over. So feel your way into what feels like a balanced posture for you. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. If your eyes are open, they could be like a little bit open. You could find a spot to rest your gaze, let it go. And if you feel just extraordinarily sleepy, even if you started with your eyes closed, you can just open them up and continue on. And before we get to the breath, we'll just sit and listen to sound. If the smoke alarm goes off, please get up. But <laughs> Listening to sound is a way of relaxing deep inside, allowing our experience to come and go. Of course we like certain sounds and we don't like others. But we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let them come, let them go. It's like the sound washes through you. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you discover. Bring your attention to your hands. See if you can make the shift from the more conceptual level, like our fingers, to the world of direct sensation. Picking up pulsing, throbbing, pressure, whatever it might be. You don't have to name these things, but feel them.
And bring your attention to the feeling of your breath. Just the normal, natural breath, wherever you feel it most distinctly. Maybe that's the nostrils, or the chest, or the abdomen. You can bring your attention there and rest. See if you can feel one breath. without concern for what's already gone by, without leaning forward for even the very next breath, just this one. And if you like, you can use a quiet mental notation of in, out, in, out, or rising, falling, to help support the awareness of the breath, but very quiet. So your attention is really going to feeling the breath, one breath at a time. And if images or sounds or sensations or emotions should arise, but they're not all that strong, if you can stay connected to the feeling of your breath, just let them flow on by. You're breathing. It's just one breath. 
if something comes up with a bang, it pulls you away, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep. Don't worry about it, truly. The most important moment in the whole process is after you've been distracted, after you've been gone. When you realize that, and you practice letting go gently, and you practice beginning again. So if you have to let go and begin again a few billion times in the next few minutes, it's actually okay.
for some questions or discussion. I think uh, maybe there are two microphones which will come forward. Perhaps Pascal said that in his introduction, but if you'd prefer to ask a question in French. Okay, if you prefer to ask a question in French, you're so welcome to do that, and then he will, he will translate it so that I understand it. context of work for my latest book. Uh, when Real Happiness came out a few years ago, it came out in January a few years ago, and the full title is something like uh, Real Happiness, The Power of Meditation, a 28-Day Program. And February, conveniently enough, had 28 days. <laughs> so we ran a challenge on my website uh, where we invited people to It's like a program in the book, like you start with five minutes and you build up um, sitting meditation, walking meditation, and so on. So we invited people to do that program, and some people were blogging about their experience, and anyone was welcome to comment. So this is all actually archived on my website. I think it's a fantastic uh, collection. And we, we somehow we've done it every year. Uh, since, but one of the things I noticed right away was uh, just the tremendous variety of livelihoods represented by the people who were undertaking the practice and, and were blogging or writing about it in some form. And there was a minister, and there were special education teachers, and there were hedge fund managers, and there were firefighters, and there was one undercover policewoman, and um, writers and artists and there, there were such a, a huge hospice nurses, doctors, lawyers, a divorce lawyer. Um, you know, there, there was such a big variety of people in the ways they were working and almost everybody, because we also asked people, we said, please be honest. Unless it actually happened, please don't say, I sat down for two minutes and I floated away in a sea of bliss. And I had nary a problem again. Um, and so people were. And, and a lot of people were talking about their work life. 
and I saw what a challenge it was for so many people, regardless of what they were doing. And there was this big, big variety represented. And I got quite intrigued by that, that this was such a challenging place to be mindful, to have compassion, to bring forth one's deepest values. And people, because it was really a community that got created, people were really sharing what they were doing for resilience. Uh, to have that sense of resource, to learn to communicate better, to find a, spense, a sense of meaning. And so I thought, wow, look at that. Um, so it was beginning with almost like the testimony of these people that I, I began working on the book. Sometime before the end of the night, I'll tell you my favorite story from the book. Hi. And um, the focus of uh, this weekend session and tonight's talk is mindfulness, meditation, and work. But as I'm sure you're, everyone here, most people are aware, there's also uh, mindfulness and meditation is coming up very much now with chronic pain sufferers, depression. There's MRI, fMRI studies that are showing the significance in that uh, relationship. So I'm wondering, in your lengthy practice, if you've seen a difference between the effects of meditation and mindfulness between um, workplace and um, people in the other situation? Well, I, I mean, I think the skills are the skills. Uh, one interesting study about pain, about physical pain, and I always think physical pain is also a symbol for emotional pain, you know, and anxiety and despair and fear, and any, you know, any kind of pain. Uh, but one study that was done, which I found very interesting, I'm not going to get this totally right, but it's something like this, was out of um, Richie Davidson's lab at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And I don't know how he got permission to induce pain, but somehow he did, physical pain. And I happened to be sitting on the stage with the Dalai Lama and Richie and Matthew Ricard when this study was being described to the Dalai Lama. And Matthew Ricard, the man who took my book title, um, <laughs> is a, a Frenchman who's a monk in Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But he was a scientist before he became a monk. And so he's very often involved in these studies because he kind of speaks both languages in a way. And he's a tremendous bridge. So he's one of the main people they always study. Um, so what Richie found was that uh, the reaction of meditators and non-meditators to the experience of physical pain was basically the same. And... The non-meditators immediately flipped into a mode of anticipation. When's it going to come back? How bad is it going to be? What's it going to feel like? You know, so if they got like heightened and, uh, you know, really had a big reaction, it didn't actually abate. It just stayed there. Whereas the meditators would have that reaction to the pain because we're human beings. You know, that's, it hurts. But then they could relax. You know, they could drop down. Uh, and that's a big difference. 
right, in the quality of one's life. And I, I know where I was when I heard about the study because the Dalai Lama started asking, like, uh, were you applying whatever it was that was painful at regular intervals? You know, might they have guessed when it was coming back? And Richie said yes. And the Dalai Lama said, no, 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 you must surprise them. You know, and Matthew was, <laughs> was sitting on the other side of me and he, like, leaped up in this chair. Like, oh, no. It was very funny. Anyway, um, I've, of course, had many students with chronic pain conditions because it's life. And uh, we talk about it a lot in terms of mindfulness and meditation. Uh, you know, the first thing we usually say is let's look for what we might be adding on to the experience. Um, the anticipation of the future, the judgment, this is all my fault. Uh, you know, whatever it might be. And see if we can release the hold of some of those add-ons. And then there is encouragement in a balanced way to look directly at the experience of the pain. Uh, because what we see with everything, whatever we're looking at, is that it's not just one thing. It's moments, you know. So with the physical pain, it may be moments of pressure, moments of burning, moments of twisting, moments of iciness. None of that sounds good and none of that feels good, but that's an alive system. And we feel the change within it, even if it's really there a lot. Within itself, it's moving and changing. And we find some space. There's one friend of mine with a particularly awful kind of chronic pain condition, she said, I found the space within the pain. You know, so it's because of that different relationship, there's a very different experience of it. And that holds true for emotional pain as well. Most of the studies about depression um, have to do with recurrence of depression. Because uh, depending upon the severity of the state, you might not have it in you you know, to concentrate more or to actually undertake a meditation practice. There, you know, are pretty intense findings in a positive sense about recurrence. Um, and I would posit just from my experience that uh, because meditation practice is very flexible in terms of form, you know, we sat for a little over 10 minutes. There's some monastery in Burma. It's not the one I ended up in. I never end up in these places. But, uh, you know, where I hear that you sit for five minutes. You sit for five minutes, then you do walking meditation for five minutes. And tomorrow we'll do both sitting and walking. We'll do both mindfulness and loving kindness. There's just a lot of forms and a lot of styles. Um, you know, so I never ended up in the places where you sit for five minutes. I always ended up in the places where you sit for like an hour. Um, but aside from my personal karma, you know, uh, there's a lot of adaptability. And there are a lot of ways that, uh, I mean, I've worked with people in very um, acute states of trauma. And the mindfulness is not so much about sitting with your eyes closed. It's like, feel this glass. You know, make contact. Feel the coldness of it. Feel the hardness of it. There's lots of ways in, in which we can practice.
I see uh, the work that you you're doing um, is uh, seems to me to be uh, part of the Buddhist tradition in a very real way and in a very um, hands-on kind of way. Uh, how to orient my mind, what to do to look at my breasts, and, and I think they're very effective uh, means. Uh, I also, another thing from another point of view, I noticed the word uh, awakening uh, entering in more and more into the literature, including your own, I don't mean your own personally, but if, from the framework that you represent. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask uh, about that, because in some traditions, like the Zen tradition, for example, awakening is kind of, uh, it's hard to say what is necessary experience, but uh, I'd like to know what awakening um, means for you. <laughs> okay, great, thank you. Um, I do uh, speak out of my own experience, which is from within the Buddhist tradition. Uh, that first retreat I did in January of 1971 in Bodhaya, India, the first night, uh, Goenka, and Goenka, who was leading that retreat, said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And this is completely non-sectarian, this is completely available to anybody as a methodology that wants to employ it. It's in no way about becoming a Buddhist. Um, you can have another faith tradition or no faith tradition. So that's day one, right? Uh, and so that has, that understanding, that perspective has formed uh, the context in which I've practiced for over 40 years and is very much the context in which I teach. So on the other hand, like, I have been practicing for more than 40 years, you know, in this tradition. And so the languaging, the um, metaphors, the imagery, the stories that come most naturally to me are from, from the Buddhist tradition. Um, and that's not so for everybody, you know, but it's, it's certainly so for me. And so depending on the context of where I'm teaching, I might say, you know, the Buddha said, holding on to anything is suffering. Or I might leave out the first part because <laughs> uh, it doesn't feel appropriate. And I'll just say, let's look at what it's like when we hold on. You know, and the pain that exists. Most of my early books uh, quite explicitly quote the Buddha. Um, Real Happiness was the first kind of break with that. And a friend of mine was looking through it and he said, oh, you wrote that one in American, which is true. And then I had a book in between Real Happiness and Real Happiness at Work called Love Your Enemies, which is also a title I did not choose. Um, and that, was, you know, I was, I did that one with Bob Thurman, who is a scholar of Buddhist studies. And so I kind of went back to using that languaging, you know, and then with Real Happiness at Work, I went back again to 
to just trying to say plain, which is a good exercise also for me. Um, the word awakening uh, is a little tricky because I think it does mean different things to different people. I, I took it in my own practice to mean those experiences we have that from which there is no turning back. Uh, and in the Buddhist tradition, these are often sequential. It's not just one. Right? So those experiences of insight or understanding that we have from which there's no turning back. So that we know something so deeply, it's like in us. Which doesn't mean, doesn't seem to mean, we live in accord with it all the time. But if asked, we don't kind of fumble. Like, do things change? I'm not really sure. Let me take another look, right? It's like we, we have uh, really come to see that. And so I don't tend to think of like a single experience, a singular experience, so much as, and, and from my point of view, this may not be traditional, but um, it could be about many different things. Um, the Buddha said, uh, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. That knowing that really deeply, even if you can't stand that saying, or even if it frustrates you, or even if it seems impossible, there's a way of knowing it deeply, deeply to be true. Right? In a way that you don't start to think, well, maybe in this case, you know, like 20% hatred will do it. You, know, like so you just know. Um, so I don't think it's as removed from us as we might ordinarily imagine, you know, or at least from my point of view. Hi. You might move your microphone up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking of the word to say rest and how how can you just say, well, this is good to rest at and this is not good to rest at. I mean, for example, work. When do you say, well, it's, you know, with the fire alarm, it's really easy to just walk out. But sometimes, I, 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 I would say it's intuition, but how, how do you really know or in your practice, okay, how could you do the shift of resting? How do you rest or how do you decide what to rest at? Uh, I think I, I would like the answer for Saul. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> sure, okay. Okay, so um, when we rest our attention on an object, uh, it might mean, for example, at work, at least at certain times, not multitasking. And I don't know that one can create a day where you're never multitasking, but 
as we try to bring these qualities into something like a work day, the goal, ironically enough, is what a really venerated ancient Tibetan Lama told me once in Nepal, which is short moments many times. We're trying to just like puncture the crazy momentum around us with that moment of just being with ourselves or being connected to what's happening around us. And it won't last long and that's not a problem because our goal is short moments many times. Uh, what some mindfulness teachers call purposeful pauses, right? It's just now and then being able to come back, which is a kind of regrouping and will really help you in the next moment. So uh, one of the great myths of our time is that if we multitask, we'll get more done and we'll do it well. Whereas studies show we're not getting more done and we're not doing it that well. It's like if you drink the cup of tea while you're checking your email, while you're on the conference call, while you have the TV on mute and you're reading the crawl, it's not a very fulfilling cup of tea. It's probably also not a very fulfilling conference call. Um, I once used that example. I was being interviewed for something and the journalist said, do you have a spy camera in my office? (laughs) We just do that all of the time. But what then follows? You know, we don't tend to think, oh... I didn't really taste the tea, I didn't really smell the tea, I didn't really feel the warmth of the teacup. We tend to blame the tea, right? (laughs) Why do I use tea bags? That's so crude. You know, I need loose tea. I need to go out and buy a little tea ball and a strainer and some really fine tea. And then I'm going to drink the tea and I'm really going to get fulfilled. I'm going to really appreciate it. But if you drink that next cup of tea the way you drank the other cup of tea, it's not going to happen. Um, And then we think, oh, you know, maybe I have to go to India. (laughs) And buy my tea directly. And this is the spiral we always get into, right? We, it's so rare to look at the quality of our attention as playing any role in our lack of, of fulfillment. So every once in a while, don't multitask. Just drink the cup of tea, right? I saw myself quoted on Twitter saying just that. Just drink the cup of tea. Sharon Salisbury. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Works. And again, it's just going to be moments, you know, so all those things like don't pick up the phone on the first ring, let it ring three times and breathe. It just gives us that break Uh, and connecting to ourselves. So I used that example on the radio this morning, which we'll play tomorrow morning as though it were happening tomorrow. Um, And I said, I told the guy, like, you know, I once went into this company, it was in New York City. And I, I gave that advice, you know, don't pick up the phone on the first ring, let it ring three times and breathe. And I saw the panic on everyone's face. 
And I said, maybe twice. <laughs> For you, just let it ring twice, you know, then pick it up. Whatever. So it's just these pauses, you know, not anything dramatic, but it will make a big difference. Don't uh, maybe write out the email and press send right away. Um, take a few breaths, read it again. Then decide if you want to press send. So that's the rest. doesn't mean you're not doing anything. It doesn't mean you're not uh, fulfilling your goal, you know, your task. Um, you're just trying to do it in a different way. And uh, it's fun, too, you know, just to kind of bring that in um, to your work life. People say, because remember, this all came to me, a lot of it, most of it came to me from what people were doing. And so it was really interesting for me. Um, somebody said, in the, in the light of loving kindness, that in the beginning of a meeting, she would just look around the room and look at everyone's face and remind herself, well, this person wants to be happy too. And they want to be happy too. And they want to be happy too. Or a very good thing to do, always, uh, is before a major conversation or you know, phone call or meeting is to be mindful of your own intention. Like, what do I really want to see come out of this? Um, do I want to be helpful? Do I want to be harmful? Do I want a resolution? Do I want to be seen as right? Just to know, really, what's, what's our motivation? What's our intention? You know, so there are many ways that we use mindfulness. And one of the greatest sources of rest will come. This is my favorite story. Uh, from having a sense of who we are. Regardless of the views of others. Um, the ups and downs of the day. Uh, being able to ground our awareness in a sense of who we are and what really matters to us. So the story, I mean, in a way it has nothing to do with meditation, but for me it's through meditation that I would get to something like this state. It's a story about, um, I was in New York City and I was downtown and I was trying to get a taxi to take me somewhat further uptown because the Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh was going to be giving a lecture. And, you know, he's quite elderly and it's not that usual, so it was a very uh, significant event in my mind. And um, even though taxis cruise the street and they just go up and down, there are certain periods of the day where it's just very difficult to get a cab because the the shift is changing, and so the drivers are taking the taxi to wherever they need to drop it off, and then the next driver will pick it up. So uh, it's notoriously hard in those periods, and this was just like that. It was one of those periods. And what happens sometimes in that time frame is that uh, the driver will stop and roll down their window and ask where you're going. Because if your destination is near where they need to drop off the cab, they'll take you and you'll be the last fare of the day for them. 
So finally, that's what happened. This taxi stopped. And I told the driver where I was going, and he said, okay, get in. So I got in, and then we got stuck in the most awful, unbelievable, terrible, unthinkable traffic. It's like we were going nowhere. I'd never seen anything like it, and I felt really bad. First I thought, not going to make the lecture. But I mostly I felt really bad for the driver. He was clearly going to be late. And I didn't know what happened, like if he got penalized or uh, got a fine of some kind for dropping off the cab late. And I said to him, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. You were nice enough to pick me up, and I have never seen traffic anything like this. This is just unbelievable. I know you're going to be late. I'm so, so sorry. And he said to me, first he said, Madam, traffic is not your fault. <laughs> and then he said, nor is it mine. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I don't even have to go here, Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> I just had an enlightened cab driver. <laughs> because I thought, I mean, really, how many times a day is he likely blamed for something that's not his fault? This crazy traffic, a bridge is closed, there's some errant driver... And to know that, like, nor is it mine. So I thought, okay, that is my new mantra. <laughs> nor is it mine. And he got me to the lecture with zero seconds to spare. Thich Nhat Hanh, with perfect dignity, was walking onto the stage, and I ran to my seat to get in there. But isn't that incredible? Nor is it mine. So you think about that. What does that take? You know, that kind of repose or sense of who you are or not getting caught in the winds of change. And that is really one thing I would see as the fruit, a fruit of meditation practice. Do you have any children's programs? What do you do here? <laughs> okay, there, there are many such programs coming up. There are several books written about it. Um, one that comes to mind is a book called The Mindful Child. Uh, but there are many. There are many programs in schools. Um, it's all just a translation process to be... Uh, kind of direct, uh, correct on the developmental level, you know, in terms of the languaging, and especially as kids might need something much more concrete. So, like Susan Kaiser Greenland, for example, who wrote The Mindful Child, has these exercises like um, having a very young child lie down and put a, putting a stuffed animal on their belly and they watch it go up and down. That's like the rising and falling of the breath. So there's everything from that to the kind of silence that can happen in Quaker schools um, to loving-kindness practices. I've helped write different curricula for loving-kindness of different ages. 
Um, uh, there's a tremendous amount. You know, I, I just I find it's really just a question of of uh, the age appropriate language, and, and there's a lot of resource now for that. It's really uh, it's a big adventure. Um, there's a a program that happened, I think this one was in Ohio, uh, in the States, in schools, and one of the things they often do is they create like a corner, which is like the peace corner. So if you're feeling particularly agitated or upset, you know that's a place you can go and kind of soothe yourself through the breath and other tools that they're given. And if somebody is going to speak to you when you're in the peace corner, um, they need to be supportive. You know, it's like another kid can't chastise you in, in that when you're there. They have to comfort you. And, uh, so, and other mindfulness tools. And so, um, I saw a news clip about this program in Ohio, and there was this little girl. She was maybe she was five years old, and she said. Mindfulness is the best thing in my life so far. <laughs> and I thought, mine too. Like, yeah. You know, and, and there are programs in uh, pretty troubled communities and uh, a lot of violence and, and so on. Um, I was, uh, not too long ago, I was on, uh, in July, I guess, I was on this um, TV show, the Katie Couric Show, in the States, and uh, my segment was fine, I'm sure. I didn't see it. Uh, but the next segment was really great, actually. So if any of you look up the link, I highly recommend the next segment, um, which was uh, one of the Mindful Schools programs, and there are many. Um, it's not literally Mindful Schools, that's kind of an umbrella organization, but uh, these people in uh, California are bringing a mindfulness program to this particular school. And so the people up on the stage were the two teachers, from, or two of the teachers from the program. And they were describing how, you know, it's a really rough district and lots of problems. And um, the one teacher said he was incredibly depressed at not being able to make much of a difference in the students' lives, and so he introduced this mindfulness program. And it was really making a, a big difference. So then, uh, by this time, since my segment was over, I'm sitting in the front row of the studio audience, and sitting next to me is a little boy, I think he was like nine years old, and sitting next to him is his mother. So, uh, Katie Couric says to the mother, how has this mindfulness program affected your son? And she said, it's really changed his life. He was going downhill fast. His older brother had been killed, I assume shot. Um, and he, you know, he couldn't function in school. He was really acting out. He was really in trouble. And then he did the mindfulness program and he's so much better. So then Katie Kirk says to the little boy who's sitting right next to me, what did mindfulness do for you? And he says something like, it helped me feel my anger without acting on it. 
He said, it helped me deal with my grief. And then he said something like, uh, it helped me enjoy things again. So it was kind of amazing. And I started crying. And you have to understand, I had like four inches of makeup on me. <laughs> the TV camera. And I thought, oh great, look, traps coming down my face. Uh, but it's kind of incredible. Um, because, as you say, there's, there's a, a great willingness to just have that adventure, you know, and undertake these things and experiment and check things out. So it's, it's a very wonderful kind of thing. Okay, yeah, last question. My name is Francois. And I'd like, um, I'd like to know if you can tell us about the non-doing aspect of the meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Well, the non-doing aspect of meditation practice can also be in, well, uh, there are different levels to it. In one way, it can be encapsulated by not holding on, not pushing away. So maybe uh, as the practice evolves, you know, and, and grows. Uh, you're sitting with the feeling of the breath. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to improve it. You're experiencing it fully in the moment. And then something else comes up that's strong enough to take your attention away from the breath. You know, not some little whoopy thing, you know, but strong emotion, strong sensation. And that becomes your new object of attention. But the quality of attention is what's really crucial. That you're not holding on, you're not pushing away. That's also rest, right? Maybe it's the most beautiful thought in the world. Maybe it's quite an unwelcome emotion. Maybe it's a very pleasant sensation. Maybe it's a very unpleasant sensation. But we're not trying to manipulate or change our experience. We're trying to be with it fully. So that's one, one sense of non-doing. Um, there's also a sense of non-doing which happens um, just as the mindfulness gets a certain kind of momentum where it doesn't really feel so much like you're trying to be mindful of something, but it just kind of grows. Um, so that it's, it's a kind of natural thing, you know, to feel. Uh, and then when you forget, because we do forget, then that kind of intentionality can pick up again, right? You think, oh right, touching. And uh, you build the momentum again. So that's kind of both meanings. Okay, I think we need to stop. Um, I'll see many of you tomorrow. Um, is there anything you'd like to say about tomorrow? Or We're back here, right? <laughs> Orient me. Yes. It's my life. No, no, it's here. <laughs> it's here, but not now, tomorrow. Okay. And, uh, maybe you want to, if you come back, or a friend is coming, you know, tell them to bring a shawl, or... 
hood or something because I saw I was in the back and I kept seeing people covering them. So many of you. So maybe the, it's going to be the same quality of air, uh, the same temperature. So um, and otherwise, really want to thank thank you, Sharon. Yeah.
On revient nous demain matin, hein? OK, super. Non, non, ça commence à 10. On va être ici à 9 heures. Oui. OK, ça marche. Parfait. Merci. Super. Can you close it? Just, it's okay. Just make sure. Just make sure. Stop it.